Conversations. Hello everyone, this is Darvo here. This is Med Conversations you're listening to. And I'm Beck. We'll start off with a case. So, 75-year-old male, previously well, completely well, although he was a heavy drinker, and he's Irish. He rings the ambulance because he has a sudden-onset headache. Then the paramedics get there in 10 minutes but can't get into the house. After an hour of trying, they eventually barge their way in and find him on the ground at GCS4. He's rushed into the CT scanner, not one of those cool mobile ambulance CT scanners. They're not, Do they exist? Not yet. I think they have them in Spain. Anyway... He has a huge subdural and also with some subarachnoid blood. After some urgent surgery, uh, they do a DWI the next day, and he has a huge posterior cerebral artery infarct, but also some bilateral frontal lobe infarcts. So what, what does that mean, Beck? It's in two territories. So two territories without a common vessel relating them sounds like it might be embolic? So cardioembolic is the first thing we think about. Um, but his toe is normal and he's been in a monitored bed because, as you can imagine, this guy's been in ICU and uh, for days and days and days and no AF is recorded at all. So we probably start, need to start hunting for secondary causes. So I suppose if if we have ruled out AF, we want to have a look to see if there's any kind of vasculitis. Mm, mm. And lo and behold, we do an ESR and it's 120 so that brings us to this podcast topic, acute phase reactants. Something that's always confused me, what exactly does it mean? Is an ESR of 120 really bad? Could that possibly be spurious? What does it all mean? So we'll start from the beginning. What do you think of when you think of acute phase reactant, Beck? What does that mean to you? I think of that as being a marker in the blood that changes when there's inflammation. Mm, so not just inflammation from infection, often inflammation from autoimmune causes or other causes. So you've got positive acute phase reactants, which increase in value when you have inflammation, but then you also have negative acute phase reactants that decrease in value when there's inflammation. We'll talk about some examples a little bit later. So the two most common ones that you use, Beck? CRP and ESR. ESR is much older and much more established. What does it stand for? Uh, testing me there. Erythrocyte <laughs> sedimentation rate. Yeah, so the what it is is exactly what its name is. It's the distance that erythrocytes have fallen after one hour in a vertical column of anticoagulated blood. So the unit of measurement is millimetre per hour. So I like to think that there's people in the lab that that's their entire job, just watching red cells float down and record exactly how, how many millimetres it's gone in an hour. And as you can imagine, something like that has probably been around for a long time. As you can also imagine, it seems like kind of a bit of a blunt instrument. There's lots of things that could probably affect how far your blood cells float in an hour, right? And uh, it's most directly affected by fibrinogen, which is itself an acute phase reactant, which is why ESR is an acute phase reactant. As your fibrinogen goes up, your red cells float further, because they're heavier, I guess, in that column of blood, um, and your ESR goes up. Sounds good. What's the normal range? So it varies depending on gender and age. Mm. I think the the upper limit of normal is 15 in young men and goes all the way up to 50 in older women. Mm. Did you have Professor Murtaugh? As a student? Yes, yeah, I did. Yeah. This was one of his things. He's a, a big shot professor at Monash, a really famous GP. 
But one of his big things is never turn your back on an ESR over 100. He called them sky-high ESRs. And for him, there were three causes of it. Tuberculosis, multiple myeloma, and... Um, giant cell arteritis? Yes, exactly. But you were ba- hoping I'd come up with that <laughs> one. But basically, a sky-high ESR has a very low false positive rate for serious underlying disease. In studies that have looked into this, no obvious causes present in just less than 2% of patients with that sky-high ESR. And uh, out of 1,006 consecutive outpatients with really high ESRs over 100, infection was found to be at the root of 33%, malignancy 17%, and as we said before, multiple myeloma is a particularly big cause. But another one that I often forget is renal failure. So end-stage renal failure causes your ESR to go up as well. And 60% of patients with that end-stage re- renal failure have an ESR over 60. And then you've got your other inflammatory disorders that made up 14% of that, 1,006 so, groups. So just to just to sort of reiterate that, in this study of about 1,000 patients, only a third had infection um, and, and about a fifth of them had malignancy with the remainder having either renal disease or inflammatory disorders. Mm. So it can go up for a variety of reasons. Yeah, yeah. As we said, it's a blunt instrument. Lots of things can cause your blood cells to float further. And then, so that's your sky-high ESR category. Then you've got your mild to moderate elevations of ESR, and that's an entirely different kettle of fish because you can imagine with something that's not that specific to begin with, when you kind of lower the range a little bit, it becomes even less specific. So usually if you find an ESR that's that high and uh, you not couldn't find a cause for it, um, on kind of history and exam and what you know about the patient's comorbidities, usually you just kind of repeat testing after several months uh, because most of these mild to moderate unexplained ESR elevations are just short-lived. And that's because there's a whole bunch of kind of non-necessarily pathological things that can raise your ESR. So it goes up when you're anemic and when you have macrocytosis, which, you know, are pathological but not due to inflammation. Renal impairment, as we said before, so end-stage renal failure, pretty high ESR, but even if you have some kind of renal impairment, low GFR, your ESR goes up. Also pathological. True, but not inflammation. And also just by being old and female, I'm not going to be ageist and sexist and call that pathological, but that can raise your ESR as well. And then it's also important to remember it can go the other way. So you can imagine people with sluggish blood like Lance Armstrong who've been taking too much EPO or have polycythemia vera, uh, their blood is going to float down pretty slowly in those tubes. So their ESR is going to be lower than it would be otherwise. Yes. And that's interesting because I suppose patients who have these conditions, if they have PCV or they have a leukocytosis and their ESR is normal, you'd have to interpret that with a grain of salt that perhaps it would ordinarily be higher. Perhaps there is an underlying inflammatory condition, but it's just not responding in the way you'd expect it to. Can't trust them. Anyway, moving on. CRP, another three-letter acronym, C-reactive protein. So this is the new kid on the block. It was only discovered in 1930, so relatively new, I guess. Measured in milligrams per litre, and it's secreted within six hours after a stimulus and usually reaches a peak after 50 hours, so it's much quicker than ESR. And uh, what does CRP actually do in the, in the body? Why do we have this marker that conveniently tells us when we have inflammation? So it, it's a protein, obviously, 
hence the P, um, that's released by the liver as part of the innate immune system. And what it does is it activates or it assists in the activation of the complement system and it binds to the phagocytic cells. Phagocytic. Phagocytic? Mm. Phagocytic. That's how I said it. Mm. I'm wrong. So it has some anti-inflammatory effects. So elevated CRP, much more uh, specific and pretty sensitive as well. So it has a 90% sensitivity for inflammation. And uh, it's important to remember that if the CRP is really high, over 100 we're talking here, it's probably a bacterial infection. So viral infections don't tend to send your CRP that high. And I've been involved in a few cases where we've kind of ignored a CRP over 100 and still thought, oh, this is viral gastro, but the patient got really, really septic and sick later on, probably should have been started on antibiotics earlier. Mm. But there's also other inflammatory conditions that cause it. So rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, lymphoma, that can raise your CRP as well. Mm. So you said it was more specific than ESR, though? It is, yeah, for inflammation. Mm, okay. So things like anemia and... Um, polycythemia vera don't affect it Mm. so that's pretty useful and it's not affected by renal failure as well which is obviously really common in the hospital population but it's also important to remember that some inflammatory conditions don't actually raise the CRP so um, SLE so lupus is classic for this ulcerative colitis is classic it's one of the differences between Crohn's and UC where UC doesn't raise your CRP but Crohn's does Really? I didn't know that. Mm. And temporal arteritis as well. So this this isn't like this all the time, but sometimes you get this kind of ESR-CRP mismatch, and that's one of one of the telltale signs they talk about for temporal arteritis. And also, where was the CRP made again, Beck? In the liver. So if you've got liver failure, again, can't trust it. doesn't mean anything. All right, so head-to-head, ESR versus CRP. What's the advantages of being an ESR? Um, even if you have liver failure, it will change. Mm. Um, it's cheaper. It's So if you're interested in global health and that kind of stuff, you've got to learn to read your ESRs. Mm, so it's more widely available, mm. I suppose, in the third world. Yeah, yeah, and simpler. Um, and uh, I guess there's probably more literature on it, although CRP has been around for nearly 100 years, so that's enough time. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how recent it is. It's <laughs> enough time as in literature. Um, CRP is more sensitive and specific um, and more responsive to change. So CRP is the one you'll be tracking every day. You're not going to be putting on FBUEC, ESR to see whether someone's bacterial infection is getting better. You can really track it day by day and see if they're getting better or worse because remember, it takes six hours for it to be stimulated and it takes 50 hours for it to peak. Although you'll find that most consultants prefer you not to do CRP every day. Um, mm. Every second day seems to be the frequency of yeah, choice. Yeah, that's true, actually. And that makes sense, actually, with 50 hours. Hmm. Um, and also, consultants have been annoyed at me before when someone's clinically getting better, the CRP's tracking down, and then I've done it again, it's gone back up. Now they don't know what to do. <laughs> They're like, don't <laughs> test it, don't test it. They're clinically better. You can say the CRP's tracking down, discharge. Okay. Patient-centered care. <laughs> Well, and it's true, though. You can't treat the number. You've got to treat the patient. Mm. Um, and uh, the, their clinical well-being is the most important thing. And uh, you're not necessarily going to withhold someone in hospital just because their CRP went back up for a little bit. Or even just hold them in hospital. No, not even. 
So, Beck, what are some other causes of, uh, or some other ways of reading inflammation? What are some other positive acute phase reactants? There's one classic one that always stuffs people up when they're looking for causes of anemia. So, the ferritin, that tends to go go up. It's mm. one of the, oh, well, you asked me about positive ones. So, this is a positive acute phase reactant. And, and that's interesting, not because you would necessarily order ferritin for um, measurement of inflammation, but just if you see that someone's ferritin is within the normal range, but they've got a raging bacterial infection, mm. you assume that they're actually probably deficient. Yeah, so you call that inflammatory iron studies. There's another one, procalcitonin, which is kind of getting chucked around recently, and uh, that's very highly specific for bacterial infection, and uh, not really adopted yet. Initial studies are pretty promising that it's quite specific and you might see more of it in the next few years. But at the moment, it's kind of chucked around when you really don't know what's going on with a patient. Should we do a procalcitonin to see if this is bacterial or not? But we don't know how to interpret it yet. So, Fibrinogen, as we said before, that's why ESR is an acute phase reactant because of fibrinogen. Alpha-1 antitrypsin is another one. Haptoglobin, which you classically test for hemolytic anemia. So if someone has inflammation and uh, their haptoglobin is normal but you still suspect hemolytic anemia, probably take that with a grain of salt because the haptoglobin itself is an acute phase reactant. Uh, Interleukin-1 receptor antagonist is another one and hepcidin. Okay, moving on to negative acute phase reactant. What's the biggest one to remember here? What's going to go down if you have inflammation that you might otherwise... Um, commonly measure and use as a marker of disease. So I think the big one is albumin, and that's mm. why it's even included in some you know, pneumonia severity scales mm, and that is, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So it goes down with infection. Yeah. And a transferrin is another one, which is on your iron studies as well. And I don't know what this is, but look it up at home and tell me. Transthyretin <laughs> is another one. So that's it, guys. That's acute phase reactants. Really important to kind of have a basic idea of what this is about. Really helps with you and the wards and interpreting tests and knowing which further tests to order. Thanks, Darvo. See you later.